What am I? What is the relationship between my mind and my body? The mind-body problem is an age-older problem. One of the questions you ask yourself, are your thoughts, feelings, perceptions, sensations, and which thing that happen in addition to all the physical process in your brain? Or are they as themselves just some of those physical processes? And what about gut feeling, instant? How we can anticipate uncertainty and predict situations before it happens? Do we understand why that happened to us? So when it comes to design robots or soft robots, one of the questions we can ask, should the brain and the body evolve at the same time? Should it be designed in a supervised way or open-ended way as we have in our nature? What kind of design we should aspire for? Optimal or adaptable? One of the questions we can ask, how do these robots can function at open-ended environment and anticipate the uncertainty? What if there's damage happening to the brain or the body? How they can adapt to each other in this scenario like that? What we are still lacking in designing robots to achieve the embodied intelligence? In this series, we are going to interview researchers from interdisciplinary field to answer these questions and trying to understand what are the missing pieces so that we can achieve embodied intelligence. And what kind of tools or series we need to develop for solving the dilemma of mind-body problem. First of all, we would like to say thank you for Professor Fumia Lida for initiating the International Workshop in Embodied Intelligence, as well as this podcast series idea as a part of the workshop. It was the first time in our field to have such a great event to stitch all the leading researchers and ask the basic questions and what could be the direction for achieving the embodied intelligence. I hope you enjoy listening to this series, and here's the interview. Thank you. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Hello, Professor uh, Abian. Thanks so much for joining us in the podcast. Uh, such an honor to have you. I would like yes. to ask you first. Yes. Thank you. I'd like to ask you first how you'd like to define yourself for the audience who may be first time listening to you. Um, I would like to define myself as an artificial intelligence expert who is specialized in evolutionary robotics. That is the short version. Yeah, great. So maybe before going there with all the details, we ask every guest about their childhood. How was your childhood was? Do you have any memories being just in science or technology as a kid? Yeah. Yes, uh, I didn't expect this question, but I did have a childhood, definitely. And uh, my father was a mathematician, so, you know, a scientist in the family was kind of normal to me. Mm. And um, I learned quite some mathematics and scientific thinking from him. And even though as a teenager, I wanted to be anything but like my father, I went to study mathematics. So I had a grade in mathematics and I enjoyed it really. Um, although my mother tried to push me or pull me to the, to the Arctic side of the story. So as a child, I was interested in reading literature and writing short stories and in mm -hmm. mathematics. And finally, when I had to make a choice whether I will study mathematics or literature, I made a mistake because I said, 
if I study literature, I will never do mathematics again. But if I do mathematics, I can, I can do literature as well. And that is not true. So once you become professional in something, uh, at least me, all my time goes into my work and I don't have time <coughs> to, uh, to do much literature anymore. Mm, that's uh, interesting. So I'm curious to ask you how the transition from mathematics to what you're doing now in artificial intelligence and evolution, how this is transition with you? How we come interested in these problems with this thought? Uh, the transition from mathematics to computer science first, and then from computer science, a specialization into artificial intelligence second. It was actually by happenstance. So by a student exchange, I met Dutch students. I, I studied, I was born, raised, and I graduated in Budapest, Hungary. Mm-hmm. By a student exchange, I met Dutch students. So I got invited to the Netherlands and I spent a couple of very nice weeks spread over a few years. After I graduated as a mathematician, I wanted to do something in the Netherlands. Mm. And all I could get in quotes now was a PhD scholarship in computer science. So I started to work as a PhD student on a computer science department. And pretty much I uh, already quite soon became the AI expert because it was in the 80s. This was based on my uh, diploma thesis, my master's uh, project, which was about AI. Mm. So that already determined me. My master's supervisor who told me about AI back in Budapest and the math department, then uh, the, um, the, the, the occasion to become a PhD student in the computer science department. And by being a PhD student, I read a book uh, of Dave Goldberg about genetic algorithms. And that outlined the idea of using Darwinian processes as problem-solving algorithms. And I was so fascinated by that idea that I thought, okay, I don't mind leaving behind mathematics. I don't mind leaving behind computer science as a big area. I want to do genetic algorithms or later on, it became a bigger field, evolutionary algorithms. So that was a few years after graduation. And actually this passion never changed. So ever since the early nineties, I am doing evolutionary computing. Wonderful, yeah. So I guess about at this time, what kind of question comes to your mind when you, you, you ask yourself what we have already in human as intelligence or evolution that we work? What kind of questions when your PhD student comes to your mind back in this time? What kind of questions do you have to yourself about this field? So when I, when I started to be interested in artificial intelligence, it was during my master's thesis before the PhD. And I was really trying to solve the problem of making computers think like humans. I mm-hmm. Little I knew or realized that thinking as a human is too broad to be captured uh, very quickly. So that was the first thing. Uh, computers were something very uh, not lifelike. Eh? They were machines that needed electricity, uh, they could break, they were metallic and plastic. And um, I really was fascinated by the possibility to make them think like us. That was the first big question. Can it really be done? Can we really make a computer intelligent? And because it was the 80s, the, the grand challenge back then was computer chess. So. I kind of joined this uh, bunch of people all over the world who were uh, thinking about it. 
could we make computers play chess? Because I was a mathematician and I was um, very much interested in mathematical logic, the first kind of AI I was doing was uh, logic programming. That's kind of old school by now. It is reasoning in a computer and it, it neatly connected the mathematical inclination of being formalistic and uh, also very pedantic, rigorous in, in formalisms, but in the meanwhile, uh, doing things that usually are associated with all the human mental abilities, like prove a theorem or reasoning about a diagnosis. So that was the first thing. Later on, when I learned about evolution, I already started to think about um, whether we could use evolution to generate intelligence. As we know from biology, life on Earth, and therefore intelligence on Earth, has been uh, created by evolution. And the analogy is really striking. If um, natural evolution can produce natural intelligence, then it's a very plausible hypothesis or a, a straightforward question whether artificial evolution can produce artificial intelligence. And this is the question that I'm trying to answer for 25 years. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting question. So before going to this question in more depth, first of all, what's something still at the, when you try to answer the question, something still hard to understand about this question. If we look to what we have already in nature, how we can, the evolution of intelligence can be produced. What's something still hard to understand or explain in, the, in what we have already in nature? before going to artificial evolution or intelligence? I mean, what is hard to understand is the transition from uh, not having something to having something. Mm -hmm. So when I'm thinking about the evolution of intelligence, then there is a bump, which may not be a bump, but rather a gradual transition from non-intelligence to intelligence. And if you dig down deeper in history, then there is another big bump, but it may have been or again, a gradual thing from non-life to life. So these transitions are really hard to grasp. grasp. These transitions are really hard to grasp because um, it seems somehow magical. We don't have life and a million years later, we do have life. Or we don't have intelligence and a million years later, we do have intelligence. So that's, that's somehow, yes, almost like magic. The artificial part of the story, artificial intelligence or artificial life is mm, very much um, hand engineered in the beginning. So when in the 80s and the 90s, people wanted to make computers that play chess, uh, they you know, knew the rules of chess and they knew how to play chess. So they interviewed chess players and they tried to codify the knowledge in a human. So it was not completely from scratch. It was not from not playing chess a transition to playing chess. Gradually, they fill the computer with knowledge and, and you know, heuristics and everything. And pretty much the same for um, not only thinking machines, but acting machines, robots, um, if you will. First, they cannot do much, and then you engineer them uh, to being capable of doing more and more. And at a certain moment, they are walking like a dog, they are charming little children, or they are frightening uh, grown-ups. But again, you start with putting in knowledge and skills yourself. So that's also a gradual process. But what is still hard to grasp is the transition from non-life to life, 
from, from non-intelligence to intelligence. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting part. But before going again for this question, maybe I can ask you what kind of maybe form of intelligence you want to abstract from what you saw, what kind of sort of intelligence you think is very interesting to you. Uh, the, okay, the, the kind of intelligence that I'm interested in evolving is very diverse. Uh, sometimes I got surprised uh, in the 20th century when thinking about AI, I realized that artificial intelligence in the 20th century tried to mimic the highest levels of human thinking. So we didn't think, oh, sorry, AI did not start with uh, computers that were thinking on a level of a toddler. They immediately went for mimicking humans that were, you know, uh, champions of chess, which is for many people, you know, the, the ultimate thinking ab ability of a human. And um, if you go down, like, what is that kind of intelligence based on? It also needs uh, dexterity. It also needs, uh, you know, visual capabilities, uh, motoric skills. So um, that's at least two kinds of intelligence. One is very much mental intelligence, like thinking, uh, reasoning, making deductions. And the other one is more embodied intelligence, which is related to, to, the, to the body, the, 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 uh, the incarnation of humans and animals and robots. And that is maybe harder to realize than your thinking. And one piece of evidence for this is we had chess playing computers already from the 90s, but robots that can you know, maneuver in an unknown environment are still a little bit uh, too far-fetched. We have very good robots, but uh, putting them somewhere in a forest, um, probably they would not survive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really like what you said about embodied intelligence because in your work, you speak a lot about the brain and body and how they have to be evolved. And there's a lot of interesting things you really uh, discuss. But before going to that, I would like to speak first for people wanted to answer the question, what's actually embodied intelligence as a definition? Or what could be forms of embodied intelligence? There's some creature, these don't have brain and they manifest intelligence for their bodies to adapt to the environment. And maybe we can first of all answer this question, what is embodied intelligence? What could be forms of embodied intelligence? So embodied intelligence, and I don't mean it to be a coordinate definition, is an intelligence that needs a body. Who, whose intelligence really is grounded in having a body. And that is not a um, Google Assistant. It is not a chess playing computer because they are you know, very digital. And the uh, environment where uh, uh, an internet web crawler lives is, is the internet. So it's fully virtual and digital. A robot is embodied in the sense that it really needs its sensors and it needs its actuators to act. And a robot or embodied intelligence is uh, by definition uh, immersed in, in a sensory motory loop. And the intelligence is the link between the two. So uh, the sensors provide information about the environment, which could also include information about the robot itself or the human herself or himself, okay, whether you are hungry or whether you are too hot or feeling cold or ill. And based on all this information, 
the processor, the brain, uh, decides on actions. So this is the embodied intelligence. And why this is different? Because this is something that cannot be simply realized without the body. I read or saw on YouTube, I'm not sure anymore, uh, a very interesting argument uh, saying that it is completely impossible to store our intelligence on a chip just before we die. And then 100 or 200 years later, being revived, if the technology is already advanced enough to retrieve you know, that brain stored on a digital chip and then put it in a new body. Because everything we are is so much um, tightly connected to the body where we live. What I just mentioned as uh, sensations like feeling hungry or feeling cold or feeling ill, it is all you and it is very hard to um, to argue scientifically that it could be put in a different body and it would uh, have the same capabilities. Mm -hmm. I really like this point when um, you said about the, um, the body and the brain uh, evolving. For example, you said the best system is where body and brain, what you said about evolving simultaneously at the same time. And yes. that's what's called the triangle of life. If you can tell us about can we in robotics just depend only on uh, one side, like the brain, which is, as you say, software, for example, or the intelligence or the body? This is a very interesting uh, statement. If you can elaborate more about that, how do you see it evolving, both of them, one of them in that case? So this is where the story really gets interesting uh, and very, very challenging, uh, close to the nearly impossible because everything I said about intelligence that needs a body and or it is more interesting if it has a body so uh, let me be very clear we do have intelligent computers whose intelligence is fully digital so they can play chess or they can make a recommendation on Netflix or you know uh, arrange your financial services whatsoever and this is digital intelligence which is okay this is here to stay but embodied intelligence is more challenging and more interesting, but there is a simple form where the body is given and not changing. Okay, so you want to build a computer or you want to build a robot that can, you know, navigate in a, uh, in a city. Yeah, I'm talking about autonomous vehicles, autonomous cars. They have sensors and actuators that you can build. You can make it more and more intelligent depending on how much research and development effort you can put in it. But still, this is the easy part because the body is given. The car is a car, it has four wheels and you know, pretty much uh, given shape, morphology. When it really gets excited, um, sorry, when it is really, when it's really getting exciting uh, is when the body also evolves. Then you also want to have morphological intelligence. And to this, I really have to uh, name examples from, from, uh, from animals. So we are really fascinated, or some of us are really fascinated, about how certain birds can fly or what kind of behavior some fish uh, can exhibit. And these have completely adapted bodies to that environment. So the intelligence is partly in the body and partly in the brain. 
And one example we all know is the thumb and the index finger. So in the Homo sapiens, this is, you know, you can use it and you can use it to touch something. And it's an interesting question, uh, the chicken and the egg. So are we intelligent because we can do it or can we do it because we are intelligent? So the use of tools and this, this feature of our morphology is really strongly connected to each other. So the ultimate question is not simply, how can I make a given robot intelligent, but what kind of morphology or body or hardware and the corresponding brain or controller or software is optimal to solve a given task in a certain environment. And that's when we get to evolution. Evolution is the mechanism that has solved this already thousands of times, if you look at all those species on Earth. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting, Bart. Maybe someone could argue with that. You say that because, yeah, the morphology and the brain and the environment, how this really solved in nature. But we see sometimes it's not the optimum solution. And sometimes we see uh, people try to design something even beyond what we have in nature, evolving something artificially, not even existing in nature. How does this argument? Because what we have in nature is not optimum. It's just a result of evolution. That is definitely true. So the Homo sapiens is not the global optimum for any optimization problem. And the common mistake that uh, my students make who are novices to evolutionary computation or evolutionary computing, they think that evolution is an optimization algorithm, but, but it is not. So evolution can be used or abused as an optimizer, but evolution is not about optimization. Evolution is about adaptation. So the clue is that evolution is capable of generating better and better adapted morphologies and controllers, or bodies and brains uh, in common parlance. And these may be good enough to solve the task on earth, um, in, in, in the biosphere, the task is simply survive and reproduce. So whenever uh, a species gets good enough uh, to maintain itself by creating enough offspring and not to disappear, the, the problem is solved, okay? There is no need to make it more, more optimal or even better. But also for robots or artificial evolution, embodied or not, uh, it could be the case that we have a very good solution, which is not necessarily the optimum. And in most cases, we don't even know. We have no idea what is the optimal solution to a very complex problem. All we know is whether it is good enough or not. And if it's an engineering problem or you know, a computer science problem with a crisp definition of quality, then very often we also have a notion of good enough. And whenever the quality passes the threshold, we are good and we can, we can stop. Mm -hmm. Let's lead me to the point of what you discuss about supervised evolution vs open-ended evolution and figure out what is really maybe the adaptive solution or example the new babies you try to do in robots. Because it's very interesting how, how you develop that, how you figure out this is the right way to, to generate new generation of robots or tools make tools, for example. Mm -hmm. So how you see the supervised one via the open-ended uh, evolution in that case, when you try to design uh, your robots or give birth, for example? This is a very good question because it sharply touches on the big cheat actually behind uh, artificial evolution. Artificial evolution, as we know it, turns 
natural evolution upside down in terms of the notion of fitness. So we are used to this Darwinian notion of survival of the fittest and uh, artificial evolutionary processes, algorithms or mechanisms always start with defining the fitness as a quantifiable um, abstract notion. And if you evolve a robot for moving quickly, then fitness will be speed. So we postulate that fitness is speed. And then we start the evolutionary process and we say that robots with a higher fitness have a, sorry, robots with a higher speed have a higher fitness and therefore they can reproduce more frequently than robots that are slower, which have a lower fitness. But this is the story upside down. A biologist could tell you that rabbits or whatever animals never wear a number on the forehead saying, my fitness is 2000, can I reproduce with you please? So in a biological uh, system, fitness is in the eye of the observer. We observe a biological system and we come up with this abstract notion and we, uh, we associate levels of fitness afterwards. If a rabbit has 2000 offspring, children and grandchildren and grand-grandchildren, and we compare it to another rabbit, which only has 10, then we say the first rabbit is more fit because it has more offspring. In artificial evolution, it's other way around. First, we say this robot is fitter because it is faster and therefore it can have more fitness. So now I'm coming back to your question about open-ended evolution. Open-ended evolution is the natural way where we do not have a, quantifi a quantified notion of fitness, which we use as something that determines the probabilities of uh, reproduction. Open-ended evolution is when we have some mechanism that regulates when uh, these artificial organisms or physical robots can mate with each other. And the only thing that counts is whether they satisfy this, whether they are attractive mating partners for other, um, other individuals of the same species. And if they are, they can reproduce. And then we can see evolutionary trends towards something that we didn't even code in the system. Using this example of robots that are optimized for speed, speed is something which we declare to be the fitness value. So evolution will maximize this because you know faster robots will have uh, more children. So it will grow and the robots will become faster and faster over time. So somehow this is not very interesting. For the first sight it may be, but after doing so much evolution, it is trivial. What is interesting if we have a trend in a property or trait for which we do not select. For instance, if the stability or the balance of the robot head also shows a trend. And very often we see this, so we start an evolutionary process that the robots are slow and completely unbalanced and then they become quicker, but still unbalanced. So they look very you know, strange behaviors, but sure enough, uh, they are covering a larger distance during the test period. And then if we run on and on with evolution, then we can see, not always, but very often we do see that the balance is also going up. And that's interesting or more interesting than speed going up because we don't select for it directly. So that is an evolutionary trend which comes by itself. So having better balance is again, close to that magical part. We didn't put it in the system, but the system brings it to us. So this is open-ended evolution. Uh, we define the rules of engagement 
what does a robot need to satisfy? What kind of traits or behavior does it need to have to have children? And then we push the button and wait, see what happens. Mm -hmm. Great. So maybe also a quick question here. So I'll ask you about the innate. And when we see some uh, animals, you're really born with this need. You don't have to learn what you turn your robot, for example. These really figure out that completely uh, once upon the uh, born. Or how they can do that? Have you ever thought how they can get this knowledge and they don't even get the training for that? This innate, how it happened now? Animals that have skills by birth are very good examples of how an evolutionary process can codify something or, or write in the genome, uh, which we would need to learn. And this process is known as a Baldwin effect. Uh, so an animal that is born and needs to do something to survive, for instance, uh, distinguish, I don't know, uh, poisonous mushrooms from edible mushrooms, okay, then the parents can teach it or it can, uh, it can learn it by itself because eating poisonous mushrooms, it will, it will feel ill and after a while it will unlearn eating those mushrooms and focus on the edible mushrooms. This takes an effort. So there is an investment needed uh, to learn what is edible and what is poisonous. Now, there may be animals that are born with a random preference for one of the two mushrooms, and they don't have to learn because they are already born with that skill. And this can be just random mutation in the genetic encoding, which gives them this preference and they will reproduce quicker because they don't have to put in the learning effort. And that means that they will have more children and therefore in the generations to come, there will be more and more animals that already have a, a built-in preference for the edible mushrooms and they will have a kind of repulsive feelings towards the poisonous mushrooms. So this is what they call the Baldwin effect. And then it seems that robots are born with this magic property of being able to distinguish, but this is purely mm -hmm. part of a selectional advantage of not having to learn something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe a quick question here. What's something you think still may be missing or we don't give much attention when it comes to this question we ask it? Do you think maybe still something we don't give much attention when we try to yeah, consider the question of evolution, for example, open-ended or supervised uh, evolution. Do you think the other maybe parts still missing? Or maybe something we didn't give much attention, we focused only in one direction. Do you think when you look from a helicopter view, do you think that's something we have to focus also on in this picture? Yes, two things. So one is the incarnation. So the at the, at the moment there are no or hardly any real evolutionary robot systems uh, available, meaning robots that can really reproduce. There are two or three maybe, and one of them is in Amsterdam, and I have an example of such a robot here. So this is the first robot baby on Earth uh, because it was conceived by two existing robots that were in the same space, in the same time, and they uh, met and they made it uh, digitally, obviously. They exchanged a genetic code and that new piece of code was uh, 3D printed and hand assembled into this thing. So this is the child, but look at this. So this is a very classic 
robot. Okay, it has plastics, it has servo motors, it has fires, it has a Raspberry Pi, and it even has a battery. Mm -hmm. This is extremely limiting. And of course, we do not have to create carbon life from scratch again. We, we don't need to follow the, the path, the evolutionary path on Earth from non-life to life. But I really think uh, the limitations of this uh, mechatronical robot incarnations should be um, somehow, you know, uh, surpassed, which makes the trend of soft robotics extremely interesting. So soft robots or any kind of new materials that enable robots to, uh, to perform new kinds of actuation and new kinds of sensing, they will be much more likely to lead, lead to interesting robots, interesting behaviors, much more flexibility. That's what. Mm -hmm. So I think we should focus more on soft robots and evolution shifting from shifting away moving away from mechatronical robots mm -hmm. the other thing that uh, will really give a boost is good combinations of evolutionary learning so we already discussed this uh, the Bodin effect but there is also another effect which is easier uh, to realize in an artificial system and this is called lamarckism or lamarckian evolution so you already mentioned the triangle of life, which is just a generic system architecture for evolution of robots in real time and real space. And the essence of the triangle, which makes it a triangle, that after birth, robots have to undergo a learning process. If for nothing else, because evolution will produce new body forms. So a child robot will have a different body from the parents. It will have more legs or fewer wheels or two heads rather than one head. Uh, the camera will be positioned elsewhere. So a new robot will have to learn to control its body. And that, uh, that means finish actually the, um, uh, the, yeah. the installation of the software on that piece of hardware. Mm -hmm. And tacitly, people in the research community, including myself, thought that you know, the robot will learn and whatever it learns, it will die with the robot. And when a robot gets uh, fertile, and conceives, conceives its own offspring, then the genome that the robot will use for that is the genome that the robot inherited from its parents. Because this is how it works in, um, in, in life on Earth. However, there was a biologist, Lamarck, who thought that traits and skills that are acquired during lifetime by learning can be passed on to children not by teaching them, but he didn't know about the DNA and genetics, but uh, then he would have uh, said that uh, by means of genetic inheritance. And biologists were for a really long time firm on saying Lamarck was wrong because this is not true. So the fact that you are an excellent football player or uh, I, I, I play piano or speak you know, a, a strange language, that this skill can be passed on my children because they are my children, but this is not true. They have to learn to play football or piano or learn, I don't know, what language. However, in an artificial system, we can do that. And this will accelerate uh, the development extremely. The only thing we need to do is that whenever the robot learns something, make sure that that learned skill is not only part of the uh, robot makeup, 
which is learned, but also it is written back to the genetic material so that when the robot causes its own offspring, then these can be passed down. And it's this quick, we can realize Lamarckian evolution. And that means that development will be much quicker because we don't have to wait for the Baldwin effect. We can, you know, in a few generations, we can develop a lot of skills and call it back to the genome so that all children will really inherit this without waiting for that lucky mutation and that very slight reproductive advantage. Yeah. I'd like to scan that because I, the part of from life to no life to life. Do you think it's important to robotics when you show the example of the simple component in mechatronics? Do you think in that case it would force us to think about the way we design the actuation, actuation here and the sensing? Do you think that something forces us, if we think fully about incarnation of the, the, the embodied intelligence, we have to go for uh, this direction of considering the way we design the sensing, the way we design the actuation, or from life to no life, do you think that's something to get this picture? We have to shift the focus of we how use our systems currently. Um, yes and no. Um, so the yes part, no, sorry, the no part is we don't need those um, strange, creative, or bizarre forms of actuation and sensing uh, to evolve really capable robots in, design, in demanding environments for, for hard tasks, okay? Uh, given the mechatronical uh, setup, uh, we can do already very interesting things. However, evolution is a mechanism that is, in my eyes, very creative. You know, think of the kangaroo. Uh, before the discovery of Australia, nobody has ever imagined an animal with a pouch, you know? People were you know, drawing strange animals and they tried to be very original and, and bizarre, but all those animals were more or less like concatenations of existing ones, you know? The body of a lion and the tail of a goat or, you know, whatever. Animals with a pouch, we didn't imagine. Evolution did. And also in my own research area in evolutionary design and evolutionary robotics, there are really a lot of examples in which evolution comes up with a solution which the system designers did not expect. And because of this, I think it is really interesting to go down this path, not necessarily, I mean, not necessarily to have a solution to our engineering problem, but it would be really good to do because we could get robots, we, could, we really could get new solutions to sensing and actuation of which we did not think. We are developing technology for thousands of years. Then, you know, fire and the wheel and the steam engine and the processor and everything. And still there is so much out there that could be used to uh, sense and actuate and form embodied intelligence. And we cannot think of it, but evolution may. So this makes it, this makes me say yes. Not necessarily, but it would be really interesting to try. Mm -hmm. Now it could be maybe technological blocks in that case when it comes to your research, but something still super challenging for you and what you um, try to do. So the biggest technological problem or obstacle for making this work is uh, the 3D printing or rapid prototyping. I really wish we had 3D printers that can spit out a completely functional robot in one go. 
but we cannot do that. So at the moment, to my best knowledge, you cannot print uh, a servo motor. You cannot print uh, a processor, a chip like a Raspberry Pi. You, you can hardly print conducting materials like these wires, uh, meaning that very important things of what we think a robot needs to have cannot be printed. And this makes us be in a kind of you know, uh, intermediate period. We can do a lot with 3D printing and, and rapid um, prototyping, but we also need to do a lot with automated assembly. So we need to have components like, you know, a Raspberry Pi in this robot or the servo motors that have to be bought in advance. And then we need to have a stack of these components and then the 3D printer and this automated assembly arm puts them together to build a robot. But it would be much better, much faster, and hopefully also uh, easier if we did have the 3D printers, which can produce these complex, uh, complex machines. To some extent, um, I don't have to do it myself because the technology is really developing rapidly. So I'm just waiting for the technology to develop. And I hope that in five to 10 years from now, we will have the technology which allows us and enables us to, to produce a function, fully functional robot, even though very simple or rudimentary, without you know, needing to assemble it. That would mm -hmm. be my great wish. If we had that technology, uh, our research, my research and our kind of research um, would really become much easier. Mm -hmm. And for computation, do you think when it comes to computation or the designing of the, the bio-inspired evolution, do you think there's something still yeah, we have to consider when we get this inspiration for the design of new offspring of robots, for example, or tools make tools. Do you think something here for computation? Uh, yeah, is there any challenges do you, do you see? Um, for computation, I don't know actually, nobody does because we did not reach uh, the limits of the computational units, the CPUs. So the the best and most advanced project in this area is the Autonomous Robot Evolution Project um, running in the UK on three universities in New York, Bristol and Edinburgh and, and in Amsterdam. So these four partners are perhaps the farthest ahead with this technology. And we kind of cracked the birth problem. So we can produce robots uh, with 3D printing and automated assembly. And the actuation and the sensing, uh, it never went into the computational limits of these processors. So once again, you know, the Raspberry Pis are developing quite rapidly. So all we have to do is wait a year and then we have a new Raspberry Pi and that can do more computation. If the robots really become more complex, so they have uh, more sensors and more actuators, then we may. But at the moment, somehow the body is lagging behind the brain. So this is an interesting, interesting way to put it. I realize if the challenge is to uh, produce, evolve capable bodies and brains, okay, then the brain is okay because development of the brain is just development of software. And we are good in it. We do it already for decades. Uh, the development of the body, the hardware is the real tough part. Mm. And now I'm thinking about it, just allow me to mention um, a small creative project 
a PhD student of mine did with me two years ago and published a paper about it on the artificial life conference. We started with a very naive question. And the question was, what is more important for intelligence, the body or the brain? And in this form, it is hard to answer, at least by scientific means. But thinking and discussing a lot about this question, we could uh, convert it into a scientifically phrased scientific question, which we could answer by scientific means. And the trick to answer this question was to realize that uh, we can build a system which we built in simulation in which uh, bodies and brains were uh, easy to combine with each other, even if they were not made for each other. So yeah. what we could do, and that was the essence of being able to answer, we could produce 100 robot bodies and put it in a matrix and 100 robot brains, put it in the same matrix and combine all bodies with all brains and calculate their intelligence, yeah, which was just uh, gate learning. So speed was uh, the fitness value, or speed was the quality. And then we just look at the, at the standard deviation in the columns and in the rows. And if you look, if you look at this matrix built of bodies and brains, and you see, for instance, that in a certain column of a given body, the variation of the fitness of the quality of behavior is very small, then you can conclude that the body determines it because it doesn't matter much which of the hundred bands you plug into that body. The behavior will be pretty much in a very narrow uh, range. And on the other hand, you could do the same for brains. So we did this comparison and the answer was really very clear in that system with those kind of morphologies and those kind of controllers, those kind of bodies and those kind of brains, the body was more important. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting part, yeah. So I could and have a few questions. The first one is, uh, do you have any kind of scenario um, in, in what you're doing that you imagine to work in a certain way or you expect it to have certain behavior, but when you do it, when you in your robot, it was surprising or counterintuitive to what you have imagined. You have any scenario like that in your work? Uh, yes, for behaviors and brains as well, actually. That surprises are not always nice surprises. Sometimes it's frustrating. Um, let me tell you first a surprise, which is in the behavior which was not very surprising, but we wanted to evolve uh, behaviors in fixed bodies. So only the brains were evolving uh, to, uh, to find a certain location in a maze. And the robots developed a strategy which did not solve the maze at all. It was just doing wall following. It bumped very quickly to a wall and then it walked along the wall and it actually navigated through the whole maze and Sure enough, it also found the target in the maze because we didn't know, but that maze was topologically speaking, just one structure. So it was not two uh, distinct components. So following a wall, this touching the wall always with your right hand uh, brought you to the target. So this is what we did not expect, but this is a solution that evolution came up with. Speaking about surprising morphologies, um, when we started, my research group and me started to work on morphological robot evolution where morphologies and brains were uh, evolving simultaneously. 
one of the first tasks was uh, speed, locomotion, speed of locomotion. So all we wanted is give us a robot that can move quickly. And what we expected that we would get these kind of robots that have limbs, because you know uh, animals that are quick are running. You know, like the cheetah or, uh, or the horses or uh, whatever animal is running quickly. So this is what we expected. Instead, the fastest moving robots that we got were snakes. And that was just one linear structure. And they, they had very bizarre behaviors. They were kind of flapping around. And sure enough, in the 30 seconds of evaluation period, uh, which we conducted to determine the fitness, they were covering a large distance. Of course, they were very busy to some extent, okay, because they were twisting and turning. And but in our evolution robot system, there is no selection pressure against dizziness. So in real life, this may be, but in, in our system, there was not, there was none. And therefore, the fastest uh, robot morphologies in our system for a long time, they were the snakes. That's a good point. Thank you for sharing that. So thanks for calling and then have a question. First one, maybe what does could be other crazy idea or other question you think you still uh, want uh, maybe to answer uh, yeah, for your research group or what your aspiration in general for embodied intelligent robotics, something you aspire uh, for the field in, in embodied intelligence? Um, I sometimes, and okay, so, one ambition is, of course, to make this really work. And uh, I would be really happy if we could uh, evolve robots for uh, the jungle or the rainforest, because that is something where we really need uh, better designers than we are ourselves. It is not clear what the optimal body and optimal brain or behavior would be in a jungle. So do you need small robots that can sneak through all uh, obstacles and vegetation? Or do you need big robots that thumb down everything and you know get anywhere and everywhere like a two-ton gorilla? So that's, and it's a very complex, very dynamic environment uh, for which an optimal robot solution is beyond our reach. If you consider the achievements of Boston Dynamics, after millions of dollars and, and uh, many, many person years of research and development, they have a robot that looks like a dog and it walks like a dog. And that is a very nice achievement. It can even jump and dance. So that's all very impressive, but this is by far not enough to survive in the rainforest and do some environmental monitoring or sampling soils and bringing them back. So one dream of mine is to make robots that survive in the jungle and not just for surviving in the jungle, but you know, doing environmental monitoring. And if we can cover the jungle, we could cover all kinds of ecological and environmental niches on earth. Mm -hmm. this is something that we could see and monitor. And beyond this, it's quite straightforward actually, is space exploration. That's something that is, um, maybe a bit too easy to say because we, neither you nor me will be there uh, after 100 or 200 years and space exploration really kicks in but I'm really thrilled by the possibility 
I'm really pleased by being able to contribute a little bit in the beginning of this process. When we build artificial life forms that can help the human beings, the Homo sapiens, um, spread itself in the universe, starting in our own solar system, going to Mars or Jupiter and do some terraforming to build a house before we are coming, so to say. And then we will continue from there. So again, this is a very long-term dream, easy to dream, hard to realize, and even harder to say whether it's possible because it is such a long term. But I was always excited and challenged by things that seem impossible in the beginning. Mm -hmm. That's very uh, inspiring. And I think for the last part, because we haven't the podcast professor, Avilob, I don't know if you know him about the phenomenon of, uh, but also Avilob, Avilob from Harvard. He, uh -huh. he has, yeah, he is speaking about creating artificial homosebian for, yeah, and the same dream. He shared the same dream as you. He's an astrophysicist and, uh, yeah, he's believing there's an artificial life form in other planets. So I think that's something he also shares the same dream as you, what he said. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, when you start using artificial evolution, the thing that artificial evolution creates is, is very easy to see as artificial life. And there is a discipline or research community on artificial life. So this summer, there will be the annual Artificial Life Conference in Prague. And that will be an anniversary conference, actually, because it will be 100 years after the word robot was coined by this Czechish writer. So yeah. there will be a book. You may, you may have heard about the book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. OK, so that's something so natural. Uh, artificial evolution, the product of artificial evolution should be artificial life, indeed. Yes, yeah. and life has this property of spreading, and it could spread on Earth, and it could spread on you know other planets. So the big challenge we did not touch upon yet is the ethical dimensions of it. So um, I'm asking myself, and some people asking me, uh, do you really want to uh, unleash artificial life robots that can reproduce out there in the real world without being able to stop them? And my answer is no, definitely not. I don't want to unleash self-reproducing robots without being able to stop them. I want to have self-reproducing robots and be able to stop them. So that's when the ethics comes in. And that's when we really need more research, technical, ethical investigations to make sure that we don't start something that we cannot stop. Mm -hmm. I, I share, of course, what you said. I think that's something we have to think about it. So. Thank you for sharing that. But maybe because uh, we have a question about the risk and ideas, because some people would see in academia more conservative a little bit when it comes to risk and ideas and what kind of ideas we pursue. So how do you see um, when you think about revolutionary ideas or not yet VS incremental ideas and publication at, at the same side? Because we have this kind of triangle here that the risk and we have to do incremental work and have to publish as soon as possible. Do you think, um, how, how do you see about the process of the ideas we pursue via the pressure to publish? Because we have the pressure yeah, to publish as much as we can. Do you see that something affecting the way we ask the question, fundamental questions or the most important question? I completely understand the assumption behind your question, but I'm more optimistic than that actually. Mm -hmm. 
my own personal experience is that um, these crazy visions, if they really are grounded in science and they are just not, not just fantasies, they are convincing enough uh, to get publications. Mm. I remember the, when I started to think and write and talk about this kind of things, um, I was a bit afraid indeed, like uh, my fellow scientists, the research community will not consider me anymore a real scientist that I used to be or that I was at that time because I'm talking about this kind of, of grand visions and, and bold ideas and impossible missions. And actually, I was very pleasantly surprised by the feedback that I got repeatedly ever since the early 2010s and even a few months ago. Um, the ideas somehow land and people appreciate the bold ideas and people appreciate the grand vision, perhaps because first I became a scientist with a good international reputation and then I started to talk about them. So they couldn't say, this is some, you know, um, this is some, uh, how do you call it, uh, self-taught autodidact uh, who is fantasizing about things. Actually, on the contrary, so with this pandemic, um, I get invitations to give lectures and I'm more inclined to say yes because I don't have to travel and I can, you know, give a lecture in any, any city on earth uh, with very uh, little investment. And I gave a lecture uh, a few months ago on a university, a technical university, and the head of department who officially invited me uh, wrote an email thanking me for the presentation. And what he said was really, you know, really very nice to hear said, um, when I heard about you and your work, I really thought you are the mad scientist. After hearing your presentation, I still think you are, but you are a very good mad scientist and we need more of that. So this was of course just one example, anecdotic evidence, but I think the field is open for these kind of things. And probably indeed I could have had more publications, uh, more solid publications if I had done something in the mainstream AI development. But for me, that was not the motivation. And there mm -hmm. is a group of people out there whom I all respect and like to collaborate with who share this attitude. And I guess those people are the ones that are pushing the borders. Those people are the ones that are setting the trends. And that's my kind of people, the ones I really like to work with. Yeah, it's important to find your tribe, yeah. And uh, may I ask you if the ego is important for you? Ego. Ego is important for you. The ego. The ego. ego. Yeah. My ego. Um, my the ego was important for a while. I mean, like I don't know, the first twenty years of my own, of my career, definitely. Yeah. Uh, but later on, not really. So I even um, noticed in myself that. It, it is not the man, no, it, it, sorry. it sounds like a, a commercial, but I really mean it. Uh, in several cases, I had the thought, it's not the man, it's the mission. So I collaborate with people and we all want to publish and we all want publicity and we are all happy when some newspaper in some country or some TV station in some country is covering our yeah. own work. Well, one of us gets uh, an invitation to give a keynote and Increasingly, I'm really happy that these people in my in my in my bubble get invited and not covered, and I don't really often think, oh, why it's not me? I I should be the one who got invited, or I should be the one whose name is in that newspaper article. 
more and more I'm thinking that's nice because the concept of robot evolution, the concept of embodied AI, the concept of artificial life is getting coverage and it's getting uh, exposure. And to me, that is you know, more important than giving exposure to myself. I have respect for that. Thank you for saying that. And what could be the most important quality uh, you have gained? The most important quality. quality. I can acknowledge that quality is leading and uh, you have a certain flexibility in getting, uh, getting your way and getting accepted even with crazy ideas and, and uh, very uh, creative research as long as it is really quality. So you have to make sure that the scientific method is always there. I mean, if you, say, if you claim something, then you have to fund that claim on data or some really uh, real good arguments that lead to that conclusion. Simply claiming something without um, data or, uh, or a deduction will not work. And if you claim something that you have done, then you really have to make sure that you have done it. Yeah. Um, and that's all part of the quality. If you, if you stop doing that and you try to only sell a vision or some empty, uh, empty shell, you will, uh, you will be, if you try to sell an empty shell, then you will lose your good reputation very quickly. Yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah. And lastly, what was the best advice I was given to you and was life changing, maybe in your career and life? The best advice was given to you. Ooh, the best advice for others. Actually, yeah, it was given to you. It was given to you also. Yeah. Oh, to me. Yeah, it was given to you, and we'd like to share it with us. Yeah. Yes, the best advice I received from a teacher on the university in Budapest, uh, who was teaching us a last year's course, uh, a fifth-year course. It was an educational fifth year, uh, five years, and on the very last lecture, he said gentlemen, because it was all gentlemen back then, uh, I tell you the secret of a scientific career. First, you have to work 15 to 20 years for your name. And after that, 20 to 30 years, your name is working for you. And at the moment, I didn't really understand the relevance and the truth behind this. But 20 years later, I met this person on an airport who was still traveling somewhere as a professional. And at that moment when I saw him, I, re I remember this sentence and I immediately asked him, do you know me? And I you know, was speaking in Hungarian somewhere in the United States on an airport and I was, probably I do know you because you know, you're speaking Hungarian to me, but where do I know you from? And I told him this story and I said, I didn't think of it for 20 years, but now I saw you, I thought of it and he said, I don't remember I ever said this, but this is great. I will quote myself more often. <laughs> yeah that's interesting yeah thank you for sharing that and do you have any final words you would like to say for the people listening to you any final words for the community or yeah any final words think big and don't give up mm. one of the most discouraging thing was um in in my last 10 years of research is the rejections of the grant applications so developing the concept of real-world robot evolution or artificial life incarnated in hardware, that was one thing. But getting funding to do that research was extremely hard. And 
the European Commission's Future Emerging Technology Program was my natural habitat. So for many years, I got my research funding mainly from the FET, FET. And I was really very disappointed when all these research proposals written with really good researchers from all over Europe were always turned down saying this is impossible or it doesn't have an application. This is not science, but science fiction. And we developed the ideas, but we didn't have the money to, to, um, to really do the research. And that was extremely uh, discouraging. So that's a very generic suggestion also, don't give up. Don't give up, try to get a little funding for this or do it without funding. If you have a PhD student or some spare time, ask your department and they may give you a few thousands or 10,000s. Don't give up, go for it. And sooner or later, you will have the first grant. And then once you have the first grant, the other ones are easy already. That's wonderful. So thank you once again, uh, Professor, for your time. It was a pleasure to have you and sharing your interesting work with us. Uh, so thank you once again for time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for your questions. Have a nice day. Thank you.